Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to the latest edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, delivered directly to your computer by podcast. And yes, we're supported by listeners. I want to thank Leanne Rayer, a new subscriber, Linda Gray, and Nancy Kilgore for their support of this program. Our voluntary subscriptions start at five bucks a month, and you can sign up at PeterBCollins.com. In the second half of this podcast, we're going to meet two activists who are targeting White House advisor Cass Sunstein because sitting on his desk are EPA regulations that would deal with coal ash pits. These are toxic sites all across the country. And uh, Sunstein, the Harvard Law professor serving in the Obama White House, as an administrative czar, appears to be listening to the coal industry and the coal ash industry instead of his own EPA and the individuals who are living near these sites and whose lives are at risk. And the New York Times reports today that Cass Sunstein is on a short list for appointment to the next opening on the U.S. Supreme Court. But joining me for the first portion of this program is Stephen E. Jones. He is a professor of physics emeritus from Brigham Brigham Young University, and he has been a longtime contributor to what is loosely called the 9-11 Truth Movement. Dr. Jones, welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to uh, talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure because I have uh, followed your work now for a number of years, and I appreciate the objective and dispassionate science research that you bring to these issues. Because I mentioned Cass Sunstein, he, as a White House advisor, has written some memos uh, deriding those of us who don't believe the official story of uh, 9-11 as produced by the 9-11 Commission and uh, embraced by the U.S. media and our elected officials. And uh, you and others have uh, maintained your integrity despite the attacks uh, that have come from many quarters. And Cass Sunstein is just one example of those who deride the people who seek the truth and who look to the physical evidence, the real-time accounts from people on the scene, particularly at the World Trade Centers in New York, and the forensic evidence. And that's one of the things that we're going to delve into today, the, uh, the analysis that you and colleagues have conducted and the scholarly paper that was produced as a result of that research, uh, identifying some very interesting elements 
in the dust that was collected at a couple of points near the uh, Ground Zero World Trade Center site. And, Professor, since I mentioned Cass Sunstein and the way that uh, people seeking the truth are often vilified, I wanted to ask you about uh, your departure from Brigham Young, because uh, I was prepared to kind of open this up as a, uh, a violation of your academic freedom and that uh, you were not treated properly. But in researching for our conversation today, I read a blog post that I think is fairly recent where you talked about how you feel very fortunate that while the outside perception is that Brigham Young uh, operated in collusion with uh, Dick Cheney and the Bush administration to uh, silence you and to cause you to lose your job, that uh, you look at it very differently and you seem very generous in your views. So please tell us a little bit about uh, the circumstances of your retirement and how you view those issues today. All right. Excellent question, uh, Peter. And I do get this question uh, rather frequently uh, since my early retirement. Yeah, um, and indeed, there has been a lot of good that has actually come out of that, so I would like to revisit that. Let me start back in uh, 2006, so nearly four years ago now, when um, that at that time I had, I had written this paper, uh, What Indeed uh, Caused the Collapse of the World Trade Center Buildings. And I may not have that title exactly correct now. It's been a while since I, I wrote that paper. But um, uh, I presented uh, the results, the major results, at Utah Academy of Arts and Sciences in April of 2006. And that paper was reviewed by a... Uh, professor, a physics professor, a colleague of mine at Brigham Young University, and approved. And so I gave that paper. Uh, it did make it to the local newspaper here called the Desert News, which has quite a large circulation. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> that was already something good the university did. They approved that publication. Then things kind of heated up, and I could tell that um, there was some concern on the part of the university, they said there, they told me, and it was in the news as well, uh, parts of this, uh, that is that they were getting pressure, some kind of outside pressure, not exactly clear who precisely, but uh, a lot of pressure on the university to have me um, try some other type of research, I guess, <laughs> of course, I um, found that rather awkward with dealing with the university, and at the same time, they were supportive. I mean, I asked my department chair, and he said, yes, you certainly can uh, speak out. You have academic freedom. Um, it's just we're getting all this pressure. And so it was, it was awkward. <clears throat> now, to make a, a long story short, what happened in uh, things kind of came to a head. Uh, maybe you remember back. Uh, Peter, August of 2006, we we managed, uh, we in the 9-11 Truth community, managed to get on C-SPAN. And the occasion was a conference by, uh, it was hosted by Alex Jones, but I was there and, uh, oh gosh, uh, Robert Bowman and some mm -hmm. others were Colonel there. Bowman, uh-huh. Colonel, 
this panel, and Webster Tarpley, and anyway, we were on this panel discussion, and um, C-SPAN recorded it, and then C-SPAN played this uh, a number of times, uh, of course, publicly, and that started bringing a lot of attention. And then we started getting into the media. 9-11 is now approaching. This is August of 06 and September 11th of 06. You know, <laughs> media starts talking about 06 again. They're talking about, wow, look at these uh, 9-11 truthers. They actually have some evidence uh, that they uh, about that, that challenges the official story of 9-11. Is perhaps this isn't so crazy after all and like that. Mm-hmm. Well... The university got increased pressure as we got increasingly into the media. And um, the reaction was that they put me on administrative leave. And, um, oh, I should pull up the quote, which I just sent to us. Uh, I'm going to pull up a quote from the... Uh, oh, I have it right close here. All right, go ahead. Very close. It's right here. Um colleague in California yesterday. Do I have it? Anyway, um, here's what uh, BYU said. This is the BYU spokesperson. I'm quoting now from the uh, Provo Daily Herald, which is a, a major newspaper here in, in this uh, county and, and in the state. At least. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, quoting the BYU spokesperson. Person. Jones was placed on administrative leave for publishing a theory that explosives were involved in the tower's collapse through channels university officials deemed inappropriate, BYU spokesperson Kerry Jenkins said. Quote, again, the university doesn't have an opinion regarding the theory, she said. So the point is, even though they're challenging the venues, and it was pretty clear to me that uh, they were concerned about by being on C-SPAN, you know, mm-hmm. not that that's illegal or anything, it's just it's causing them grief. <laughs> but she made it clear that they were not denigrating my theory regarding 9-11 events when she said the university does not have an opinion regarding the theory. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was an important distinction. And then um, uh, and then they, they made it, which is to their credit, they admitted they were under pressure. And uh, then, let me tell you, um, behind the scenes, they encouraged me to continue my 9-11 research, even after I was placed on leave. And it was paid leave, by the way. <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah, and um, I was allowed to use BYU's state-of-the-art electron microscopes freely. And that resulted in our discovery of the red nanothermitic material that is the subject of the paper you alluded to. Right. And we'll talk more about that. Also resulted in uh, uh, that is use of these electron microscopes, um, which I was able to use very freely, uh, discovery of the iron-aluminum-rich microspheres in the World Trade Center. You may have heard about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also allowed... I uh, need to work with uh, Dr. Fair, and he could work with me. There's no restriction. He's the director of transmission electron microscopy laboratory at BYU. And so his help was crucial, and he's one of the co-authors on this paper. 
Uh-huh. Now, there's a little more to it, since we're going to be talking about this paper. Um, as we wrote this paper, it became time to publish, of course, and this is what we do in science. We publish our results in a peer-reviewed journal. Right. And I sent out the abstract and some photos and some information about the paper to several journals, oh, a handful. And uh, the Open Chemical Physics Journal was the only one that responded favorably, saying, yes, we, this is in our um, realm, and plus we, we are interested in uh, pursuing this in peer review and see if it can be published. Mm-hmm. So it's there. But in addition to that, peer review, which the journal did, um, BYU also reviewed the paper before publication. And, uh, and that was at Dr. Ferrer's request, since he is an employee at BYU, and actually a uh, pretty important position, being a director of, well, of the uh, Transmission Electron Microscopy Lab. So they found it. BYU peer-reviewed it. They found it to represent sound science, and they approved it for publication. Mm-hmm. Again, that's, that's really to their credit. Now, um, you know, I'd like to point out these facts, and that uh, BYU did the, the review on that, so that was good. And uh, they allowed Dr. Ferrer and Daniel Farnsworth, both affiliated with the uh, physics department at BYU, both of their names were permitted and approved to appear on this paper mm-hmm. that we'll be talking about. And uh, they did not want Dr. Ferrer to be first author. In my opinion, he would have been, since he did so much of the legwork using the electron microscope, of course, I was working with him. But um, that's one thing. It just felt like that would be too much, I guess, pressure mm-hmm. again. And so that worked out fine because what we decided to do was to ask, is to ask uh, Professor Neil Terrett to be the first author. He was the third author. I was the second, and Dr. Ferrer was the first author. Uh-huh. That's how it but after it went through BYU and got the approval, Dr. Ferrer uh, became second author, and I chose, I talked to Neil, and I said, let's, Neil, why don't you be the first author? Because, you know, we've all three of us worked so hard on this. And with him being in Europe, I thought there might be openings in Europe. So and that, he, and he's affiliated with the Department of Chemistry at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. That's correct. Uh-huh. And he himself is an expert in nanochemistry. So this was just right down his alley. Um, and he accepted that, and it's worked out very well. He's had uh, a number of um, interviews. He's met with scientists. He's talked to people in Europe. And this paper has received a great deal of attention over there mm-hmm. because of his... Uh, being, uh, of course, uh, a chemistry professor and at the University of Copenhagen. Now, so, now, yeah, now, Professor... It worked out real well. I'm it, just really pleased how it all worked out. If you can, uh, because uh, in the search for 9-11 truth, timelines have been uh, a very effective uh, piece of uh, evidence gathering and contradiction, a source of contradictions from the official accounts. Uh, so if you could give us the timeline of when you were working uh, with uh, Professor Ferrer and Professor Herrett uh, and yeah. others on this report we're about to talk about. Uh, yeah. what, what was the time frame for this? Because shortly after your uh, being placed on leave, 
uh, Brigham Young University uh, invited Vice President Cheney right, to come right, and receive right. an honorary degree, and he did he, so. Yeah, right. And that's a part of this that, that needs to be understood. I, I believe that represents uh, this pressure, at least part of the pressure that was brought to bear on the university. So I was so uh, we were on C-SPAN in August of '06. I knew that was causing the university some flack. Um, you know, hey, these guys are actually getting serious media attention. And other other news, uh, U.S. News and World Report talked about us and some others, you know. So at that time frame. And then in September of 06, I was placed on administrative leave, but with, uh, you know, saying you can continue and the research and you can use the electron microscopes and so on. And then, um, let's see, I retired in January of 07. Mm-hmm. And in that same month, it came out in the news here in Utah that Cheney's office had contacted BYU, didn't say when, but it said that they had been in contact with BYU, and they had actually made a request that Cheney be allowed to speak at the uh, commencement, which would be in April, uh, the commencement exercises for the university which the university accepted, and then the university also gave Cheney an honorary doctoral degree, and that was in April, so that was just three months after I retired. <laughs> and it, was that a doctorate in intimidation? Um, uh, perhaps. <laughs> 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 yeah, um, you know. Because that, that's, that's, a, that's a significant <laughs> chutzpah. I, I have never heard of someone reaching out to a university saying, "I'd like to speak at your commencement." Doesn't it? Usu- doesn't it, it usually is? work the other way around? Yeah, it certainly does. <laughs> yeah, the honorary doctoral was in public service. Now, there's there's something else that you need to know about this, which is also very unusual for BYU. They allowed two on-campus demonstrations against the policies of Mr. Cheney. And these took place in April of 07, uh, just shortly before he uh, spoke. And, of course, I participated in both of those uh, protest demonstrations. Uh But, you know, BYU is a very conservative campus, and they have public demonstrations. And these were photographed, uh, of course, and in the media. I don't know if you remember those, but... I do. Yeah. And so, here again, to their credit, BYU is allowing not just one, but two. I think that is unprecedented. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's very rare at BYU. I, I was there over 21 years, and uh, I really can't recall any other demonstrations against a political figure. They they <laughs> allowed this, and I tell you, they were vociferous and uh, well attended. And, and Professor, can you confirm or deny that as a part of that communication between Dick Cheney's office and Brigham Young that you were invited to go on a hunting trip with the vice president? <laughs> shotgun was in the shop, right? <laughs> so that's an excellent point, but uh, no, I was not in my, uh, per se. But, All right. Uh, yeah, well, I, I would I th- recommend not going hunting with uh, Big Chain. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that that's very interesting background, and I appreciate sure, um, sure. you know hearing you articulate it because from the outside, it seems like John Yu is better defended by the University of California <laughs> than you were by BYU. <laughs> yeah, but you see, from the as you hear more about it, and that's what I've been trying to clarify. Mm-hmm. Uh, the university is under a lot of pressure, obviously, and yet they encouraged me to incur- continue the uh, 9-11 research. And then when we put the paper together, that I think is a crucial point for mm-hmm. people to know. Yeah. Uh, this uh, active thermitic materials paper, which has been uh, in the news. Anyway, then uh, they approved, they peer-reviewed it, and they approved that. Yeah. So the, it, it's an important backstory, and it uh, certainly enhances my respect for the university in dealing with a difficult issue, uh, trying right. to preserve your independence and freedom. Uh, but clearly, uh, the and, and I, I didn't pick intimidation casually, uh, the <laughs> Bush-Cheney White House was uh, quite mm-hmm. a force to be reckoned with, and uh, so one can understand what occurred there. Now let's let's talk about the the paper, and wow. I want to direct people if they would like to read this for themselves. It's about twenty five pages long, available online as a PDF. And if you go to the website of Architects and Engineers for Nine Eleven Truth, uh, scroll down on the left hand side, and you'll find a link to it. And that website is wwwae nine one one truth dot org. And I met Dr. Jones in February here in San Francisco. Uh, when he attended the uh, press conference held by Richard Gage, the founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. And uh, that was the event that uh, there were simultaneous news conferences at uh, multiple locations around the world to announce that more than 1,000 professional architects and uh, professional documented engineers had signed the petition calling for a new investigation of the events of 9-11. And right. the, that number of signatories is now up to 1,140. And wow. uh, remarkably, the, uh, the most significant coverage of that event that uh, ultimately surfaced was a detailed article in the Mooney paper, the right-wing Washington Times, uh, which uh, reported in some depth without derision um, the issues that were raised. And uh, uh, you can't see that kind of reporting in the Washington Post or New York Times, at least not yet. Maybe they'll get to it at some point. Right. So, Professor, if I may, uh, I'd like to read the last paragraph, the uh, uh, summary conclusion of your paper, uh, and then we'll delve into the uh, process that you went through to, to arrive there. Uh, this isn't like a, a novel or a, a film where we're going to ruin it for everybody, but I did want to give the summary because then people understand uh, why you went through this process and then le- the legitimacy of the conclusion that you draw. And under conclusions, you list 10 scientific points, and then uh, in a very succinct paragraph, it reads, based on these observations, we conclude that the red layers of the red-gray chips we have discovered in the World Trade Center dust is active, unreacted, thermitic material incorporating nanotechnology and is a highly energetic pyrotechnic or explosive material. I'm going to read that again uh, just to underscore what the words are, and then as we go through the process here, uh, Professor Jones, I think, will explain this to you quite well. Based on these observations, we conclude that the red layer 
of the red-gray chips we have discovered in the WTC dust is active, unreacted, thermitic material incorporating nanotechnology and is a highly energetic pyrotechnic or explosive material. And Professor, if you could just define thermitic here at this point, I'm sure it'll, it'll become clear a little later in the discussion, but what is a, a thermite or a thermitic type of mat- material? Exactly. Right. And so thermitic means that there is a particular reaction going on. And in the case of this red material, it is between aluminum and iron oxide. And these, uh, very simple uh, in principle, the thermitic reaction has been known for over 100 years. Iron oxide is just rust. And, uh, of course, this is uh, very refined now. We'll talk about the nanotechnology that's involved in producing this uh, to make it this material so it blows up and uh, still active and sitting there in the dust. It's quite remarkable, really. All right. But, but basically, thermitic is just a reaction between iron oxide and powdered, highly powdered aluminum in which the oxygen transfers to the aluminum. Uh, producing a molten iron and uh, releasing tremendous uh, energy. And it, it uh, reaches uh, a very high level of heat in a very short period of time. That's exactly right. And so what you find is that the iron that's produced in this thermitic reaction is molten, and uh, it just gets sprayed into the air. Uh, happens when you have an explosive reaction, mm-hmm. then then uh, the iron forms droplets. It's just like you, when you spray water in the air. The surface tension of the liquid pulls the uh, liquid into a droplet, and that happens with molten iron as well. And so uh, the product of this thermitic reaction is these spheres, which are very abundant in the World Trade Center dust, and also when we when we actually react this red material that we found in the dust, we again find these microspheres uh, containing iron, principally. Now, not iron oxide, but iron, okay? Mm-hmm. Enough oxygen uh, there to make it an iron oxide entirely. So there is uh, what we call primary or elemental iron, as well as the uh, some. Aluminum typically gets entrained in the formation of these spheres. So it's a very dramatic reaction, uh, very characteristic of the thermitic reaction. Okay. So then going to the, uh, <clears throat> the introductory portion of the, uh, the report here, the study, uh, you begin by, uh, there's a map here depicting the locations from which the four uh, WTC dust samples were collected. One, right. one was uh, actually on the site itself. Uh, two were collected from areas uh, just north of the World Trade Center site, uh, roughly six to eight blocks, it looks like, on the map. And then uh, a final sample was collected uh, at the, uh, the intersection of Pearl Street and uh, the access to the Brooklyn Bridge. So that's a little further east, uh, toward the uh, East River there. Uh, and it appears to be maybe 10 blocks uh, from uh, the Ground Zero site itself. Tell us about the chain of custody of these uh, samples of dust 
and the extent to which you were able to uh, authenticate them. Right. Let me um, clarify one thing, Peter. The first sample that you mentioned was collected by Jeanette McKinley. Her apartment was across the street uh, from the World Trade Center. Okay. So it's not exactly on ground, but just across the street. And Mm -hmm. what happened was that as the South Tower came down, she was in her apartment with a friend, and the windows, just the the pressure of the... uh, Well, you saw the dust, and then there was also chunks of concrete in the dust and so on, and her windows broke inward, and her apartment was flooded with this uh, highly toxic, it turns out, this uh, terrible dust from the World Trade Center collapsing. And so she survived by wrapping a wet towel. She had the presence of mind to wet a towel. She's choking on this dust and puts a wet towel around her head and is able to get outside, have a picture of her outside. She's covered, you know, with this terrible dust, mm-hmm. which we later found is toxic. And, uh, and, and let's just pause for a moment here, because you told me before we uh, started recording this conversation uh, that you got some very troubling news about her health condition just before we started speaking. Right. It is indeed uh, troubling. We know that this death has been very harmful to people, and there's a lawsuit active right now in New York City about this, taking care of these people. She's one of them. And she has developed a, a terrible brain cancer. And I just learned today, to my dismay, that... Um, the surgery has, and the aftermath has resulted in to where she can't speak anymore and she can't write. So our prayers are with Jeanette, but our concern is that uh, this cancer has just progressed so, so very far. Yeah. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that, and it is insulting the uh, limited amounts of money that have been offered, and uh, right. to his credit, a judge has rejected the initial settlement, which would have averaged about $10,000 per uh, plaintiff party. And uh, certainly what you just described uh, is about 20 minutes of medical care, uh, you know, and, and perhaps she would have received more. The, the average number is, in fact, an average. But still, uh, it's, it's woefully inadequate, and uh, I hope mm-hmm. that uh, they will pursue it until they come to an adequate resolution. I might add also, Peter, as you know, the EPA, just shortly, just days after the collapse of the uh, towers, uh, told people that the dust was safe. Now, scientists were saying it was toxic and not safe, and they should take great precautions to avoid breathing this in. EPA countered those scientists' uh, statements and said that you know, go back to work, especially in the financial district. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Well, it turns out it was a big deal. And uh, they, they really were lied to by the government. Here's a clear case of it. Uh, I'll stand up uh, to anyone uh, pointing out the facts that the scientists had made clear that this dust was toxic. And I have the EPA press releases saying that, you know, don't worry so much about it. Um, we found out later because of Nikki Tinsley, uh, Inspector General, I think is her title, anyway, at the EPA. She studied what happened, and 
the initial EPA reports were that this dust was toxic, mm-hmm. but that was changed uh, during a National Security Council meeting or two at the White House, and the wording was changed to reassurances instead of warnings about the dust, which I, I consider a criminal right there. I mean, this dust was highly toxic. You can't just overturn the scientists' observations the toxicity of this stuff by saying it's safe. <laughs> well, and so people breathed it and worked in it, and now they're suffering in the thousands. Well, there were a series of criminal assaults on science uh, during the yeah. uh, Bush administration, and this is yeah. one of the more, more uh, egregious. Now, yeah. now, briefly, if you would, Professor, uh, okay. how did you establish the authenticity of the samples? Okay. So um, the sample, let me start with uh, sample number one, Jeanette McKinley's sample. I traveled to her apartment. She had by then moved to um, California. What Jeanette did is to to get a sample. And what uh, Jeanette did is that uh, she got into her apartment and she um, uh, gathered up some dust. And it was actually for uh, an artist. She's an artist. For a piece of art, she just felt a certain reference for this dust, knowing that thousands had died. And so she saved the dust. And so I traveled to her apartment in the presence of others, uh, including uh, scientists, and I extracted a sample of the dust. Um, and then I looked at that with uh, Dr. Fair initially and early on, and uh, this is where uh, we found these red gray chips in the uh, World Trade Center dust. Mm-hmm. So, so the sample came directly from uh, Jeanette, from her bag, uh, which she kept it you know, in the presence of other scientists, and it was opened and examined with uh, Dr. Fair at uh, Brigham Young University. Okay. Um, and, and I go through the other samples, but in each case, there's a clear chain. I, I would like to mention sample number two in our paper, one you mentioned at, at near the mouth of the Brooklyn Bridge mm-hmm. on the uh, Manhattan side. That sample was collected the day of 9-11 and approximately uh, 15 minutes after the collapse of the uh, second tower. Wow. So there could not be contamination due to cleanup operations because the cleanup operations didn't begin until later. You know, mm-hmm. This is as the dust is still, still settling from the collapse of the tower, and um, this uh, young man, D'Alessio, Frank D'Alessio, had the presence of mind to uh, pick up some dust and save it. When did you first uh, develop an interest in analyzing this dust as one way of uh, forensically trying to understand what happened on September 11th of 01? Right. Um, let me say that when my first paper came out, which was actually in the fall of 2005, I put in there a request for dust samples. It was just, it, you know, we all saw that voluminous dust, and it was just a scientific um, hypothesis that the dust would contain clues of what really happened that day, mm-hmm. in particular explosive residues wanted to look for, which, by the way, NISP, National Institute of Standards and Technology, a federal 
know, under the Department of Commerce as a lab. They've refused to look for explosives, but I wanted to <laughs> because the way the buildings came down, it looked like the explosives were used. Anyway, I did get a sample, a preliminary sample of dust uh, from Jeanette McKinley and uh, looked at that, and that's where, so that's how this ball got rolling. And, and it, I went it's... out to get a larger sample, and, and as we discussed. And sorry, Professor, but it's important to note that uh, many critics of the management of the cleanup and the subsequent uh, so-called investigation by the 9-11 Commission argue that this was a crime scene where the evidence was removed as quickly as possible and was never properly analyzed. And we know that uh, the uh, mounds of rubble, including uh, some steel, were uh, removed, trucked out to the Fish Kills landfill, and shortly yep. thereafter, much of the uh, uh, steel residue was uh, shipped to a recycling facility in China. Yeah, right. Yeah, all of that is correct. And uh, the steel in particular, uh, there were scientists and engineers protesting the, the way this uh, steel was being handled over 99%. Uh, was uh, shipped away for melting down, recycling, as you said, to Asia. And uh, this was over the protests, the strong protests of in- engineers and scientists who wanted to understand what happened on that day. Mm-hmm. And here's the evidence from a crime scene being shipped away. So, again, a, a clear example of cover-up. And then the fact that NISD, despite our findings and, our, frankly, our requests, repeated requests to talk to them, they have refused to do. They refuse even to look for uh, explosive residue in the death or thermite residue either. Thermite residue is required to be looked for at a scene where arson is, um, or, or you know, a crime scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, thermite is one of the specific things that investigators are uh, enjoined to look for by the NFP. PA is the National Fire Investigation Code, uh, 921, NFPA 921, and they refuse to do it. How they get away with these things, I don't know. And then melting down this, this evidence, I mean, it's just is so blatant uh, a cover-up that in itself makes for a serious investigation uh, by someone independent of these people. Well, and and one would think that uh, with an eye toward whether it's in a military tribunal or the now scrap plan to try the alleged uh, masterminds of 9-11 in a courtroom in New York, that in any proceeding to try to identify and convict uh, the parties uh, presumed guilty for this this incredible incident, that you would want uh, criminal evidence collected in a, a... traditional and uh, legitimate manner. Right, exactly. And uh, their actions uh, over protests of uh, professionals and responsible people, asking them to preserve this evidence so that we can study it and understand it, is it's just unconscionable from a point of view of science and, of course, merits um, a, a thorough investigation by an independent Party. Mm-hmm. This is what the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth have been after, and I've been after also. Yeah. Uh, for so long. 
Now, Professor, forgive me, because I think in trying to uh, cover all of the details of the report, we would lose our listeners in uh, a lot of uh, scientific jargon and, and process. But I wonder if you could summarize for us the uh, levels of analysis that you and your colleagues conducted of the dust particles, and in particular, these red-colored chips or flakes that were visible only under uh, these very high-powered microscopes. You define a uh, one one device used in XEDS, which is an X-ray energy dispersive spectroscope. Um, But talk a little bit in, in layperson terms uh, about this process and what led you to the conclusions. All right. Let me uh, do that. So um, first I observed these little specks, uh, chips. Some of them are uh, about uh, three-sixteenths of an inch long. You know, that was in the World Trade Center. We see them in all four separate samples, and uh, we... We want to understand now what the chemical composition is, and also once we see iron oxide and aluminum, we want to see where do these ingredients for a thermite, where, where do they lie in this uh, red material? I mean, initially, uh, and early on, anyway, I thought that this might just be a paint. And by the way, we've also looked at the paint and to contrast and compare with these red grid chips. Let me start there, if I, if I may. But using electron microscope methods combined with XEDS, which you just defined, we're able to, uh, briefly, <laughs> it's fairly complicated, as you say, but we're, what the, the key is that we're able to probe what elements are present in a sample. Mm-hmm. And what we find in the paint is, um, and this I've talked about subsequently, this is not in the paper because we didn't have a sample of the primer paint at the time, but uh, shortly thereafter, we've been working on it. We did get that. I've I've discussed this uh, in a number of places, so I'd like to mention it here. The chemical composition in the paint shows zinc in a large quantity and magnesium and large amounts of calcium as well. We expected that for the paint. There's also iron and oxygen and uh, some aluminum in the paint. But now in these red-gray chips, what's so different is when we look at the chemical signature, there is no zinc in the red material itself. There is in the dust. And so what we had to do is to to get a clean, fresh um, sample of the red-gray chip. This is actually Dr. Ferris' idea he cracked it open and looked at the fresh surface. And so now we look in the chip. Yeah. And it's completely different. It's what I'm trying to emphasize from mm-hmm. the primer paint in that their primer paint is just a melange of a whole bunch of ingredients, uh, frankly, that uh, principally uh, zinc, magnesium, and calcium stand out dramatically. Okay. Whereas in the red-gray chips, these are absent. They're not there. Uh, no zinc. Uh, at all, in particular, and zinc is very prevalent in in the primer paint. So I want to make sure that people understand this is not uh, just the primer paint that we're talking about. Uh, nor does it behave like paint when we when we heat it up. This stuff blows up. 
Uh, it actually, as we point out in the paper, I hope this isn't confusing, but you can, with this nanothermitic material, make a, a paint that is explosive. I mean, you can't buy that at a store. Right. <laughs> yeah. just, and besides that, it's very high-tech, this stuff. It's, uh, the nano comes in by making the uh, iron oxide into tiny granules that are quite uniform in the red material, about 100 nanometers across, and the aluminum is in platelets. We really don't know how to do that, frankly. Hmm. We see them, mm-hmm. but it takes a technology that uh, our team, we're still scratching our heads as to how they, made, how they got the aluminum into this uh, form of platelets. So it's not, a, not available at Radio Shack? No, no, and it's not available at a, in a cave in Afghanistan either. Okay. This mm-hmm. is a high-tech material. <laughs> it is discussed in the literature, uh, the defense laboratories uh, back in uh, this time frame, 1999 to 2002, they were, and a little bit thereafter, they were talking about this wonderful new uh, explosive uh, nanothermite and uh, they talk about some tests. And in our paper, we have one of these tests done at the uh, federal, this is Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, which is where they produce some of this nanothermite. They set it off. In other words, they heated it up until it blew up mm-hmm. in a, a, a differential calorimeter. So we did the same conditions as they as, just as close as we can. I think we matched their conditions. And ours blew up, too. <clears throat> and, in fact, ours was a little more rapid than the what the laboratory published in their uh, report. And again, uh, and again, to rule out uh, any possibility that this came from a, a normal type of paint available, uh, you know, on consumer right. and industrial levels... Uh, there's no known paint that's currently in use that would have these explosive characteristics. That's correct. And in particular, uh, I'm referring to 19 and 20 in the paper. Maybe someone will actually reference the paper because uh-huh. it's, it's beautiful, I think. The photographs, are, uh, we spent a lot of work getting those. Uh, yeah, they're photographs. stunning, I would say. They are stunning and striking. So hopefully they'll actually look. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in Figure 20, we show uh, photographs taken through a microscope of residues after ignition of this red material. And in this, you see these shiny metallic spheres and also some translucent spheres, quite pretty. And the scale is given on the, on each photo. And But the point here is as we honed in on those Metallic spheres now, this is post-reaction, because, you know, after they blow up in the differential scanning calorimeter, then we still have the residue we can look at. And sure enough, there are iron spheres, iron-rich spheres. Some are uh, uh, very high in iron and low in oxygen, which means that before we started out with iron oxide, we didn't see any elemental iron. After the reaction, we see elemental iron. This is a key point which our detractors fail to address, as far mm-hmm. as I can see. It's like they don't want to talk about it. <laughs> uh-huh. Because what we see, to get 
It's, it's, uh, in chemistry, this is called reducing the iron oxide to elemental iron, which requires a very high temperature reaction to accomplish such as a thermitic reaction. Uh, to get these now, this iron in spheres means there's a high temperature, and to get it to be elemental iron, which started with iron oxide, requires the combination, a high temperature chemical reaction. As Neil Terra points out, there is no other reaction known than the thermitic reaction to have this result. I mean, we've got the right ingredients, we get the right end products. Um, the thermal trace actually uh, matches quite well the uh, trace known nanothermite conducted at the Federal Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. I mean, everything just lines up with this being this uh, uh, material, this nanothermitic material. And uh, as scientists, you know, we, we say it's either pyrotechnic or explosive. Mm -hmm. Either one. Pyrotechnic means uh, it releases enormous energy as it's uh, consumed. Explosive, of course, has the characteristic of uh, typically a flash. Not necessarily a loud sound, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, this nanothermite can be tailored to, to, to be less noisy, which is interesting in itself. Well, and and that is consistent with some of the eyewitness and real-time accounts where there was the evidence of um, a, a type of explosion, and some people did report hearing bangs uh, consistent with a traditional, uh, say, dynamite uh, explosion. But um, from the, the visual evidence, and particularly the videotapes that many people have, have seen over and over again, uh, this occurred so quickly, and the conversion of uh, concrete, steel, and rebar, and, of course, the contents of the building, including drywall and, uh, you know, all the other uh, normal elements in, a, in a, an office building of this type, uh, were reduced to this pulverized dust in such short order. And uh, it's been clearly pointed out by uh, studies, uh, including your previous one, that the temperatures, uh, the maximum temperatures that could be achieved uh, with the kerosene jet fuel, which was confined to the upper levels of these buildings, could not possibly uh, even contribute to the level of instantaneous destruction and pulverization which occurred at all levels of these 90-plus uh, story buildings in the two towers and the 47 stories of Building 7. Right. <clears throat> exactly. Yep. And very well, very well stated, uh, Peter. I well, and uh, I, I hit the wall, <laughs> you know, in high school physics and uh, chemistry, too, Professor, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing a good job explaining it. Now, yeah. I, I wanted to uh, ask you to amplify a little bit here, and I am reading uh, uh, just, just above figure 23, uh, the paragraph-headed discussion. All of the dust samples that were inspected were found to contain red-gray chips. Now, this is really important because people might offer the explanation, well, you know, the, the samples that you got uh, randomly just happened to include some uh, nanothermite that some broker had in his briefcase 
uh, in, in an office uh, at, at, you know, one of the companies in the World Trade Center. So this consistent distribution is a very significant factor. It is. And I might say that based on our uh, analysis of the deaths, we have these four samples, we can determine uh, the amount of uh, this nanothermitic material in the dust, and then we can say, now, there's this much percentage in the dust. We go through this a little bit in the paper, or at least we start the argument. Let me just finish it here and say that when you count it up, you end up with approximately three tons. And that is a rough estimate, of course, um, because as we get more samples, we can refine that. But approximately three tons of um, this red thermitic material, uh, unexploded, by the way, still, so in in the dust. So now this fellow that you're uh, having carry this briefcase, (laughs) Peter, he's quite husky because, you know, three tons is hard to carry. Yeah. And and by the way, I've had people say, well, maybe it was in the planes, uh, maybe the hijackers, again, you know, three tons, you're not going to have hijackers carrying onto a plane. Well, and it wouldn't explain the destruction at lower levels. This is the piece that, as an amateur professor, the thing that always stunned me was that all of the theories, the pancake theories and the idea of heat uh, melting the central steel construction uh, of these these towers, um, that, that if that were the case, then at some point the heat would have lost its effectiveness and you would have a mangled pile of steel uh, like, a, you know, an unfinished jungle gym. Uh, right. but, but stuff would be jutting out at all angles. And at some point, the heat uh, transmitted from the upper floors would be insufficient to bend or melt the steel. And therefore, the, 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 the total destruction, uh, generally within the footprints of these buildings is not achievable uh, based, you know, given the, the uh, it's not achievable under the story that we've been told. That, that is the bottom line, right. And, uh, you know, what you're saying, Peter, we have summarized in another paper I'd like to refer to. Please. People uh, can also read this one. It's shorter than <laughs> chemical physics, uh, open chemical physics journal paper. This was published in the Open Civil Engineering Journal in uh, 2008, I think. I have to check the date, but uh, would have been, yes, in uh, 2008. And this paper talks about, let's see if I can check that real quick. Anyway, this paper, um, the important point is it's 14 points it starts out. And if you'll go to... Uh, Journal of 911studies.com, just all one word. At the top of that journal, we link to these published papers in the uh, established technical journals. Mm-hmm. And the four, 14 points paper points out that the notion that the steel was melted has been discredited already, and I give references. NIST actually discredited that notion. That That is... Uh, that somehow the fires melted the steel. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. And the second uh, thing you mentioned was pancaking of floors. Right. That also has been discredited by NIST. And so I, a lot of people still think that uh, 
the floors uh, had this pancaking because that was in a Nova um, presentation. But in fact, that has been discredited. We challenged it, and uh, NIST has uh, consented or conceded to a number of uh, points, actually, that we have challenged. And, mm-hmm. and another one is that uh, World Trade Center 7 accelerates at freefall acceleration for over 100 feet. NIST has conceded that point to us. And so we are making some progress. And um, and so, you know, as we go along, all these myths that were generated early on uh, scientifically are being thrown out. The, the problematical thing is that as we discover this active thermitic material, uh, NIST refuses to look. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a cop-out. And frankly, a uh, smacks of a cover-up, given the strength of the observations that we have made and published now. And they just adamantly refuse to look. Yeah. Professor, I have a couple of other things, but I don't want to give short shrift to the detailed work that you and your colleagues did. Is there anything else you'd like to add about this uh, specific report we've been discussing? Uh, I appreciate the discussion, Peter. It's it's very helpful to get this out. I I would urge um, listeners to Google and find this paper. The easiest way, as I say, is to go to Journal of 911studies.com, and Mm -hmm. at the top we link to this paper and the 14-point paper. I just want to encourage people to actually read it because there's so much. Even if you're uh, a person is uh, just reading, you know, how did the samples come about? Uh, why is it that the buildings falling could not generate this material, which is re- really absurd? Um, and, and so on. Let, let me emphasize that point just a minute that comes to mind because I get that question. Well, surely there's iron oxide and aluminum in the building, right? So how come you can't just make this nanothermitic uh, explosive material as buildings fall, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is laughable. But you see, it's like saying, okay, uh, well, first of all, we looked at other buildings that did come down by conventional demolition, uh, meaning with conventional explosive, right. and there was none of this nanothermitic material, yet there was iron oxide and aluminum in the building. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we've done the experiment, basically, and nanothermitic material does not form. Secondly, the um, the aluminum is in platelets, which we don't even know, tiny platelets. Now, the the width is uh, about 40 nanometers. That's how much less than a human hair, I forget. Okay. How do you form these platelets? And then they're intimately mixed in an organic, which means carbon-rich matrix. Now, where does all this carbon come from in the building to provide the matrix for the iron oxide and aluminum? Mm-hmm. I have seen absolutely no explanation. Again, the detractors don't like to uh, acknowledge, but that is the fact. In nanothermite, produced by the National uh, Defense Laboratories, you have aluminum and iron oxide, and the other key ingredient is an organic material to hold these together. And uh, we discussed that in the paper. But uh, you can't get that from just falling buildings and have it come together. Neil Neil Carrot likes to have one other example. He says, let's say you have um, uh, sulfur and uh, carbon and a few other ingredients, and you throw them in the fire. After the fire burns out, you have matches 
of there. I mean, have these elements assembled themselves into matches? (laughs) 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 The answer is obviously no. It's an entropy argument, but I think people can understand the uh, difficulty of having random processes, these highly sophisticated explosives like nanothermite. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Professor, next, I wanted to see uh, if you have happened to review the uh, photographs that were released uh, by Professor James Fetzer. Jim Fetzer is at the University of Minnesota. I've talked to him on a number of occasions in the past, and I found him mostly credible, but there were a couple of things that uh, I I didn't feel completely comfortable with. Okay. He has now released uh, some photos that he got from ABC News under a, a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, request. Mm-hmm. And what he concludes here, he says, in fact, the towers did not collapse. Tons of concrete and a major fraction of the steel columns were converted into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust. And then uh, to support that contention, uh, he shows a, a series of photographs with these huge plumes, clouds of, of dust, and we've been discussing dust here today. And I just wanted to know if you've had a chance to look at these and uh, if you find them uh, credible and supportive of the arguments that you've made. Well, uh, of course, we've all seen the uh, enormous clouds of dust that were produced as these buildings came down. We see very similar clouds of dust uh, during controlled demolition using conventional explosives. Uh, So dust production itself is not surprising as we are talking here about controlled demolition using explosives. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I find is a need to be quantitative, and I've I've pointed this out to Jim uh, Fetzer before. I have looked at the dust. I have sifted it through a a sieve with a, a known spacing, and frankly, much of the dust uh, is coarse material. It's not dustified, I think is the term you like to use. No, actually, a large portion of the dust is actually chunks of concrete. And you see this in the sample. I've, tried, I've, uh, I've provided that uh, photo of the dust collected by Jeanette McKinley from her apartment. There are large chunks of glass, I mean, visible to your eye easily, thumb-sized pieces of concrete in there. So, in fact, this notion that somehow this was all dustified is incorrect. Mm-hmm. And I quantified that, um, and I published it in the Journal of 911 Studies, and I'm trying to remember now, you know, memory. could look it up, but uh, it was approximately... Um, I remember it was at least a fourth. Mm-hmm. I, I might be able to find it. I just need to tie up on such a point. It, although it's an important point. How much of the dust is in larger chunks? And it was at least a fourth of, of it is in the larger chunks. Mm-hmm. And so it is not all uh, dust The The steel, I've seen argue, was turned to dust too. Uh, there's a paper in the Journal of 911 Studies by a uh, physicist, uh, Dr. Gregory Jenkins, who goes through the data, again, quantitative, not just some... See, qualitative to a scientist means 
your arm waving, you're not using numbers, you haven't actually got the um, analysis to support your conclusions. You just think, oh, it's all justified. No, oh, oh, what do you mean all? You mean 100%? <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you talking about 50%? Are you talking about 25%? And so on. Um, um, the steel was uh, not justified in general. That's what we find. Now, there were some attacks on the steel which are consistent with thermite. I talked about that in my first paper, which is also in the Journal of 911 Studies. So, again, I just have I've looked at these photos, and then I asked Jim and um, Judy Wood, frankly, and others, let's be quantitative. Let's make the measurements. I have been quantitative. I've shown that there are large chunks of concrete. Uh, there are beams of uh, steel. Yes, they've been thrown, hurled horizontally away from the building, which is, uh, again, suggestive of explosives but not of dustification of steel. Where they get that notion, I don't know. But mm-hmm. I haven't seen any numbers to support such a statement. And, Professor, finally, I got an email just a couple of days ago that um, cites Dr. Judy Wood, who you just referenced, a former professor at Clemson. And I'll just read this and ask for your reaction. Uh, Judy Wood has developed compelling evidence that a directed energy weapon turned the physical matter of the World Trade Center towers into nanoparticles through the process of molecular dissociation. Dr. Wood demonstrates clear evidence that cannot be accounted for by the official 9-11 Commission explanation or alternative theory of military planes, cruise missiles, or other projectiles hitting the World Trade Center buildings, or a controlled demolition caused solely by, quote, advanced explosive nanothermitic composite material found in the World Trade Center dust, or solely by fourth-generation mini-nukes. Uh, I'm not qualified to evaluate this, but uh, I turn to you for a comment, please. Sure. So I get this sort of question occasionally, uh, generally from people who have not read the papers in the Journal of 911 Studies, which have analyzed Judy Wood's um, theory in some detail. Uh, and let me say that if you look at the papers, I, I mentioned Gregory uh, Jenkins, mm-hmm. PhD, physicist, with numbers. That's what we have to get at as scientists. We say, give me some numbers, some data to work with. What percentage of the con- uh, of the dust is in is dustified? You know, tiny. Um, Molecular size, is that the term? Uh, well, I would think particulate matter would, would be a, dis- a description that I understand. Yeah. So let's get, you know, let's get the numbers. I publish the numbers. Uh, Jenkins publishes the numbers. You've got others. Uh, James Burley has addressed. Frank Leggy, PhD chemist, has, has taken the trouble to address these theories of Dr. Wood. Why don't they respond with numbers on their own to us, you see? So we've published and we have explained that we find nanothermitic material in the dust. They actually don't deny that. They just say that that is not alone sufficient. Well, I'm not saying that's alone sufficient. We don't know. But the point is, what, what are we getting at here? We're getting at concrete evidence that something happened on 9-11 that is opposed to challenging um, actually finally 
devastating to the official story that it was just fires. We're saying, well, then what's explosive material doing there? We need another investigation. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure, we look at other theories, and we have done that, uh, as I mentioned in the Journal of 911 Studies. But these theories need to have numbers like we give. They need to have electron microscope studies like we have done. Uh, and, and furthermore, in, with regard to the energy beam, uh, Jenkins, Dr. Jenkins points out that the amount of energy required to pulverize a building top down mm-hmm. is, exceeds, uh, he put it in his paper, the entire energy output of the Earth, you know, the whole world's energy output by a factor of something like seven. Okay. During, during the collapse of the towers, which is about se- uh, 10 seconds or so. Mm-hmm. So you just can't get that much energy. Furthermore, if you look at the buildings, they don't start at the top. They start down lower. Right. So it's inconsistent with the energy beam from space building and, and, and so on. I mean, what's frustrating to me is people give me these arguments without doing their homework, which we have done, painstakingly going through the numbers and explaining why the theories are dubious at best, Judy Woods and Fetzer's theories, dubious at best. Well, and, and Professor, it feeds part of the problem that we have in trying to take a rational and uh, scientific approach right. to analyzing the issues and uh, trying to expose uh, contradictions and anomalies. Because exactly. what happens is people, like me, <laughs> can take uh, information that is somewhat scientific, uh, glance at a story on the Internet, uh, uh, hit forward, and send it to 500 people, and uh, yeah. it, it then undermines the uh, entire uh, effort uh, that's called the 9-11 Truth Movement mm-hmm. to identify uh, what did happen and to push for full disclosure. And right. that, that, to me, is, is one of the problems we've been facing, and it leads to the kind of marginalization or mischaracterization of the work of serious people like you and Richard Gage of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Again, very well said, Peter. That's, uh, I can tell your talent is in explaining things clearly. To the public. <laughs> well, and if and, I and if he, I may, the the other th- the other thing is is I try to be very critical and yes. a- acknowledge what I don't know and sure. acknowledge that uh, it's it's very dangerous when people take uh, fragmentary information of dubious scientific value and then right. pro- propel it out into the rhetorical sphere in ways that uh, are not only dangerous but they undermine uh, the the as I say the serious efforts to get at the truth. Exactly. Very well said again. But let me point out that this, uh, these peer-reviewed papers, the one that we talked about in some detail, and the 14-point paper, again, peer-reviewed. Um, and I like to point out that BYU peer-reviewed the Open Chemical Physics Journal paper on, on thermistic material in the World Trade Center dust. The point is that we have gone to the effort to go through the gauntlet to get these papers peer-reviewed and published in established technical journals. You can't say that for the uh, uh, energy beam theory from above. Mm -hmm. 
of uh, Judy Wood, for example. Well, yeah. Where is the technical reviewed paper that gives you details? He, he couldn't get it published, her theory, the way it stands, because she lacks the numbers. Mm-hmm. She lacks where is the energy coming from. A, a decent reviewer uh, would say, well, you have to tell us wh- where are you going to get the energy to produce this beam, and why does the destruction not stop at the top if the beam comes down from space? Why does the destruction start uh, a dozen floors or so down from the top mm-hmm. instead of at the top? Yeah, and and so on. So it's easy, really, to catch these types of errors. But on our side, we have gone through the work to uh, do the numbers, do the studies, uh, use a state-of-the-art uh, analysis like uh, uh, X-ray electron diffraction spectroscopy. Mm-hmm. And then we publish where we haven't had a response. So that that still stands in the scientific literature, uh, actually unchallenged from the point of view of um, uh, another peer-reviewed paper challenging it that hasn't happened. Yeah. Probably won't because, uh, frankly, it's a very solid paper. Well, Professor, it's a real pleasure to talk with you at length like this, and I'm happy yeah. to share this conversation with my listeners. I hope that they will likewise uh, pass it along to other people who are interested or open to this discussion, and maybe even to people yeah. whose minds have been closed. Yeah. But I thank you for your detailed and painstaking work, and uh, hopefully at some point... Uh, the truth will set us free. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been my pleasure. And uh, I can see that you are a critical thinker, and I'd encourage your listeners to think critically, to study these papers that we've discussed uh, for themselves and and come to their own conclusions. Thank you so much. Stephen E. Jones, Professor of Physics Emeritus, Brigham Young University. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Peter. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since way back in the last century, 1980. Click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer for you, the listeners of this program. Today it's another chapter in the propaganda wars over so-called clean coal. And we're going to do a little Ash Sunstein, or actually Cass Sunstein bashing. We'll explain. Big John, Big John. Every morning at the mine you could see him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed 245, kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip. And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. Big John, Big John, Big Bad John. Big John. Nobody seemed to know where John called home. He just drifted into town and stayed all alone. Didn't say much, kind of quiet and shy. But if he spoke at all, he just said hi to Big John. Somebody said he came from New Orleans where he got in a fight or a Cajun queen and a crashing blow from a huge right hand sent a Louisiana fella to the promised land, Big John. Big John, Big John, Big Bad John. Big John. 
Now we'll listen to the rest of that song after our conversation here with two gentlemen, and I'm really pleased to see the activism in this country because uh, I received emails from two very different directions this past week regarding the lingering problem of coal ash ponds and uh, collection sites around the country. And this is just part of the, uh, the disaster that is created every time we mine more coal. And there is a myth promoted by the energy industry and the coal industry in particular that uh, dirty coal is a thing of the past. And that because we blow up the mountaintop and commit great environmental damage, that we don't have to worry about uh, black lung and other things that afflicted miners, including cave-ins over the years. But we know that's not true. Utah and Pennsylvania have had uh, underground mining disasters in recent years. And then they want us to believe that they've, uh, you know, found ways to clean up the actual burning of the coal. Well, that's in the research labs and largely unproven and unimplemented. But what is given short shrift is the environmental damage at sites where the byproducts of coal mining are collected. And uh, the day before, two days before Christmas in 2008, while most of us were distracted by other things, there was a huge disaster of uh, major proportions in the Tennessee Valley where uh, a, a berm gave way and over a billion gallons of toxic sludge flowed out. And uh, that's been largely erased from our memory banks because the media feeds us balloon boys and octomoms and all other kinds of problems. And a lot of people figure, well, we elected Democrats. The Obama administration will take care of it. They will make sure that uh, our, env our environmental rights are protected and that our health issues are also taken into account. But right now, the Obama administration is slow walking, or in some cases, people would say obstructing, efforts to <clears throat> clean up this problem. And as I mentioned, I was contacted by two different groups this week. First, we're going to talk with Peter Kelly, who represents a group that started a fascinating website, it's really well done, called Ash Sunstein. Dot com. And Sunstein is the surname of Cass Sunstein, a White House advisor who many people believe is the point person who is blocking resolution of these issues. Sunstein is spelled S-U-N-S-T-I-E-N. -E Peter Kelly, welcome to our program today. Thank you. Uh, just going to give you a quick correction. It's E-I-N, actually. So if anyone wants to look at oh. the AskSunstein.com, it's Ask, S-U-N-S-T-E-I-N. Well, thanks and for catching that. I that My ADD is kicking in today. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> and he is an interesting uh, character. He, he was a law professor, and when he was named Obama's regulatory czar, uh, people said, you know, he's actually said some things in the past that indicate he might be anti-public health and safety regulations. And sure enough, um, we have been watching to see if the change that we were promised uh, back in 2008 would apply to toxic coal ash. Uh, and indeed, the Lisa Jackson, the head of the Obama administration's Environmental Protection Agency, she seems to think it's toxic and has sent a rule over to, um, to the White House for a review that would declare it hazardous waste, which it definitely is. It's lead 
is cadmium, mercury, boron, arsenic. There are all kinds of things in the ash that's left over after you burn coal for electricity that you don't want to have near your house. You don't want to have them in your drinking water. You don't want to have them in the food chain. And um, yet, for decades, we just spread this stuff all over the landscape like it wasn't toxic. We've, we've put it down sinkholes. Uh, it's been put on golf courses. It's been sprayed over the Platte River in Arkansas, in Nebraska, I'm sorry, to, to keep it from freezing. Uh, all kinds of crazy things have been done with this substance. It's also made into bowling balls. It's put in drywall. Uh, they make concrete out of it. They put it in roads. Anything to get rid of what is really toxic waste. Mm-hmm. It's just never been treated like that. And you've lot. you've taken some unusual steps. You have the website, and if I can spell it right, it's ashsunstein.com. And right. you've done some clever things with graphics. Uh, you show him uh, in the, is that the ash bin of history? <laughs> that's that's the ash bin of, uh, of Oscar the Grouch. Uh, we, we borrowed a little Sesame Street uh, reference there. Yeah, so you show him in a, in a trash can with the yeah. lid right on, and he's all ashed up. Uh, <laughs> so I think it's excellent satire and uh, political commentary. Tell us uh, who you represent, Peter Kelly, who uh, the, the groups that are agitating to get Mr. Sunstein to uh, honor the recommendation of the EPA and stop obstructing the implementation of these new policies. Well, the, the AskSunstein.com effort is funded through a, an outfit called the Sustainable Markets Foundation. And really, they just gave us some seed money to put up a website and get an Oscar the Grouch costume and, and try to get the word out about this holdup at the White House. The, 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 the rule that would declare this stuff toxic waste is actually stuck on Ash, we call him Ash Sunstein. It's stuck on his desk. And um, so we we showed up when he spoke at the Brookings Institution here in Washington D.C. a couple of weeks ago, and he, he, the title of his speech was "The Power of Open Government." Hmm. And um, we got to ask ask him, "Does that apply to the toxic coal ash rule that's stuck on your desk?" He said, "Your question goes to the limits of openness." <laughs> so he answered that one. So you know, here there, I think it's hypocrisy if they're going to go around giving speeches about the power of open government. But then the the exception he created that day was for the deliberative process. He said it, open government doesn't apply to national security, to privacy of individual people, or to the deliberative process, which I guess it means when important decisions are made about Americans' health and safety, we, we can't know what, what they are. So the transparency kicks in once they've made a decision or even just close the books on making a decision by, by avoiding it. Right. Is that right? And and in this case, it'd be nice to know what's in the rule. It'd be nice to know what Ash Sunstein is going to do to that rule uh, before it's all signed, sealed, and delivered. Um, you know, one of the things they could do is to say, well, if you're going to reuse it somewhere else, it's okay. It's not hazardous waste so long as you put it in drywall. Well, I don't know about you, but I have periodically uh, had occasion to cut into a piece of drywall, and it's a mess. Mm-hmm. There's dust everywhere, and I think anybody who has ever worked with drywall would like to know that the government isn't allowing a toxic waste to be put into that drywall. That, mm-hmm. That's crazy. And, and there are actually laws against that kind of thing. Peter, do we have an idea of how many of these uh, sludge sites are are there around the country? Well, there are various lists out there. One list that was recently published has 44 uh, serious cleanup issues, but really it's hundreds of sites where the coal ash is being accumulated, and there are literally thousands of places where it's being disposed of. I mean, there's a golf course in Chesapeake, Virginia. They put a million and a half pounds of coal ash uh, into the golf course in the course of building this thing. 
people at the time said, are you sure this is safe? There's, there's toxic chemicals in that. And they said, oh, it's, it's the same as dirt. You could eat this stuff. Uh-huh. Well, now, two, two years uh, of never being able to drink their well water, the neighbors of that uh, golf course have been told their water is unsafe to drink because there's too much of these various components of the coal ash in it, um, you know, things like mercury and lead and arsenic, and uh, they can't sell their homes because they, they border on this golf course that was supposedly a safe disposal site. So um, I, I think what we need to do is just wake up and say this is toxic waste. We ought to treat it with respect that we reserve for things that are bad for people and move on. Mm-hmm. Now, you've taken the unusual step of buying an ad in the Harvard Crimson, and uh, Cass Sunstein is on leave from his job as a professor at the Harvard Law School, and he attended the college and the law school um, in his training. Uh, I assume that there is no uh, coal ash near the Harvard Yard. Well, not to our knowledge, although you never know where they're going to put this stuff, um, <laughs> because it's unregulated. Uh-huh. But, uh, no, our, our point is... Uh, you know, it's it's hard to get to somebody who is basically unaccountable because he's appointed by the president and apparently has been given all this power. It's one man um, there at the, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. You know, it sounds like something out of 1984, but in any case, he's got he's got the power to to stop really any federal regulation that comes across his desk, and mm-hmm. they all have to send their regulations to him before they get approved. And uh, so it's undemocratic. It's being done in secret. And um, we think that the people he used to teach at Harvard might be interested in knowing what he's up to. Uh, the ad says, what happened to Cass Sunstein? Has Washington changed him? That's the headline. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, we're joined now by Tim Tanksley, who lives in Bacosha, Oklahoma. And uh, the other group that contacted me this week is Ohio Citizen Action. And uh, they have compiled a list of individuals who... Uh, are affected by this problem. Tim, tell us a little bit about uh, where you live and how close you are to one of these coal ash collection sites. Well, I live in Bacoche, Oklahoma, and I live, uh, as the crow flies, one and a half miles due west of the disposal site or the dump site. Okay. And is there a coal operation? Are they mining or, uh, uh, you know, treating coal in some way, or is there just a collection site? Why uh, why is this located uh, near where you live there in Bacosha? Well, in response to that, uh, I thought it was an interesting question that you posed uh, to Peter about uh, where they take this stuff, because they always seem to pick a remote, isolated, uh, you know, I mean, our our area here, and I've looked at maps, and, and most of these large dump sites for this coal combustion waste, they pick uh, economic, depressed, isolated area where they're not going to draw much attention. Oh, so there's there's no real other connection. Uh, you're not, not well, producing coal in, in this part of Oklahoma. Yes. It's simply a place they, they decided that they could uh, roll over your local government officials and maybe induce them with some, you know, extra tax incentives or something. But you're basically just a dumping ground for the coal industry. Well, uh, yes, sir, in a sense. Now, there is a, there is a power plant, a coal-burning power plant, seven miles from Bacoche. That's where oh, all see. of our CCW or fly ash comes from, mm-hmm. from this one coal-burning power plant. It's called AES Shady Point One. Okay. 
And do they actually own this uh, toxic site near you, or is it a separate company that operates that? No, you would have to be a Philadelphia lawyer to figure out how this thing works. The coal comes in there, they burn the coal, and then they send it out in trucks, and they don't they don't ever claim ownership of the ash. Uh, it's like I say, you'd 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 have to be a lawyer to figure out exactly what's going on or the way that they spin it down. Now, the information I have is that it's actually operated by a what's called a limited liability company, an LLC, which has the unusual name. Making money, having fun. Yes, sir, this is correct. Now, that's really insulting, isn't it? I mean, to, to somebody like you who lives in this area and this this open pit with all this toxic sludge, and in a moment we'll get to the impact on you and other residents in the area, uh, but it, it just adds insult to the uh, obscenity uh, for somebody who presumably is some rich fat cat who has invested in this operation that brings this uh, this toxic waste into your backyard, and they call their company making money, having fun. What what would you see as the fun part here? <laughs> That's kind of hard to explain, but I will also say that we they're not only dumping fly ash in this disposal site, but for a for a period of time now, we finally got the EPA to shut them down. Temporarily, we don't know if it's going to be permanent. They was bringing wastewater from oil and gas field activities and mixing it with the fly ash out here at this place. And and so after we got to hammering them on the making money, having fun business so hard, they tried to change their name to Clean Hydro. Now, does that, uh, <laughs> I mean, how far down the line can you go? You go from making money, having fun to Clean Hydro because you're dumping oil field waste you know, oil field and gas field wastewater and mixing it with the flies. That's the, I don't know, that's nonsensical, I guess. I don't know. Well, it's cynical. It's it's cynical, and, uh, you know, we call that greenwashing, where you, you know, and and the whole idea of calling coal clean coal is as cynical as calling this clean hydro. Now, Peter Kelly, from your research and understanding, uh, do the companies that create the waste insulate themselves from the storage and disposal of it by subbing it out to separate companies and essentially leaving them with whatever lingering liability may occur? Well, I can't speak for their motivations, but that certainly seems to be going on. As an example, in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, after it was brought to light that there's a lot of toxic coal ash building up there and people living with the problems it causes, uh, one of the local... um, newspapers called a drywall manufacturer in town. And the drywall manufacturer is very clear. Oh, yeah, we, we use a million pounds of gypsum every year in making drywall, and, and 450,000 pounds of that comes from the, the coal ash. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if there's a problem, then I guess the manufacturer of that drywall is going to be the one to bear the brunt of it. I don't know if they were told what's in that coal ash, or, the, or certainly if their customers, um, ultimately, I suppose, maybe a a Home Depot or a Lowe's or an Ace Hardware is going to sell that drywall to someone. Mm-hmm. There's a long chain of possession, and, and the originators of the problem who are spending, by the way, millions of dollars lobbying Congress on this. Uh, American Electric Power burns more coal than anybody else in the Western Hemisphere. Their lobbying budget for three months at the end of last year was $2.3 million. So that's, that's where the problem is starting. And uh, they're spending a lot of money to try to evade responsibility for it, but mm-hmm. that is not where their responsibility is currently 
resting, and, and that we think that ought to be changed. And Tim, do you know anything about this, uh, whether it's called clean hydro or making money having fun? Uh, is this intentionally set up to insulate the power company from the liability? And, you know, maybe there are only three or four investors in this uh, clean hydro or whatever it used to be called. Uh, and they can just walk away, roll up the company, and probably stick the government with the cost of any cleanup. Well, you know, I don't want to say anything that I can't prove. But, I mean, this power company, they own right at 400 acres there where the plant's at. Yeah. And the plant itself probably covers maybe less than a tenth of that acreage. So we we don't understand if there's nothing wrong with it like they say, why that they're not willing to store it there on site, on their property. Yeah. So, you know, we, we feel like there's got to be something going on. But as far as the clean coal, whenever I talk to somebody... I say, if you know what an oxymoron is, clean saying clean coal is the biggest oxymoron there is. Well, and, and, and it's a little more than that. It's an intentional lie, okay? Yeah, dirty lie. <laughs> yeah, it, it truly is. Now, Tim, tell us a little bit about the health issues of the people who live near you and if it's infected uh, or affected you or your family. Well, I, as far as me and my family, we feel like that where we live from the dump site, the prevailing winds don't typically bring that stuff to us. Mm-hmm. But the little old town of Wakoshi is just almost about a one mile due north of this dump site. And in the summertime, or seven, eight months out of the year, the prevailing winds are taking that stuff right to town. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, out of approximately 20 families that live within a one mile radius of that site, 14 or 15 have either had people die of cancer or have cancer in their family of some type and severe. Some of them's on a full-time oxygen. It's just we feel like it's causing health problems, but we can't get anybody to do a study. Now, now, Tim, this this has come up, and don't be offended by my question here, but uh, in many of my previous discussions, for example, about people who live in West Virginia near the mountaintop mining sites where the devastation, uh, you know, comes downstream and leads to these kinds of conditions of asthma, of cancer, and other uh, disease uh, diseases and chronic illnesses. Why the hell don't you just move? Well, you know, uh, my family on both my mom's side and my dad's side, my house is on land that was in, that's been in my family since this was Indian Territory, uh-huh. where Oklahoma was even a state. So, you know, I, I, I'm not going to leave. That's just the bottom line. And and a lot of these people around here are my friends and neighbors is the same way. They've, you know, they've been here since before statehood. So why should we have to leave because somebody decided to come in here and, and start dumping uh, toxic waste, you know, in our backyard? That's... Uh, all right, I hear you, and I understand your your you know your sense of uh, offense that you were there first. How long have they been dumping in Bakoshi? Uh, they started this particular dump site, I believe, in two thousand and three. Oh, really? It's that recent. But they have been dumping in other areas in this same proximity since uh, basically since the power plant went into operation, which I believe was back in ninety three. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along in there. Yeah. Now, is there any um, scientific reason 
that they chose this. Uh, now, I speculated earlier that, you know, they just kind of descended on your county, and we've seen this uh, with all kinds of predatory corporations where they sweet-talk the public officials, they build a playground or a school, and uh, then they just pollute the hell out of a place. But, <laughs> but is there a reason that, for example, uh, you know, the, the soil... Uh, doesn't leach the liquids into the groundwater or into uh, local streams or or ponds? Is is there any uh, beneficial explanation for why they chose your county? Okay, let let me see if I can explain this. In Oklahoma, especially in this part of Oklahoma, we have several strip mining areas where they come through years ago and stripped the coal out. Yeah. Where it was near enough to the surface, say, Within 80 to 90 feet, I think they could strip maybe close to that depth. Mm-hmm. Okay, these open pits, they were left during the strip mining days. So now they're dumping in this particular pit, they're calling it mine reclamation. It's being done under the guise of mine reclamation. Well, the Oklahoma Department of Mines has basically no regulations when it comes to as long as they fill the hole in, mm-hmm. I guess they could be filling it with nuclear waste, and the Department of Mines doesn't care Wow! as long as they fill the hole up. Mm-hmm. But these people have not only filled the hole up, they have built a mountain, and they keep asking every day for them to let them go higher and higher and higher. So it's just, uh, but it is done under the guise of mine reclamation activity. Now, Peter Kelly, do you see this same kind of uh, gaming of regulations and uh, disguising the actual intent in order to, uh, you know, sneak through loopholes in regulatory schemes, whether it's at the local, state, or federal level? Well, sure. That, that is the case, and that's why uh, a lot of people think, and apparently the Lisa Jackson at EPA agrees, we need one federal rule for it all, because... Um, Right now, if you quote-unquote recycle this material, then, um, you know, it sounds like you're doing something good. And, in fact, there are people who are have organized themselves under the name of coal ash recycling. Because um, who, who can argue with recycling? That sounds like a, a positive, right? Yeah. But, um, not if you're recycling it into drywall, which people have to breathe when they whenever they cut into it. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Tim Tanksley, uh, I understand that you wrote a letter to Cass Sunstein recently. Tell us about that. Well, you know, basically, I just uh, I just sent him a letter, you know, uh, explaining to him that the uh, organization or the company called Making Money Having Fun might be having a lot of fun, but the uh, citizens of Bacosia and the surrounding community weren't really uh, enjoying it all that much. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this letter... You know, I've cited the ODEQ, the Oklahoma Department of Environmental Quality, has they cited those people last year, five major violations, uh, one of them being uh, the fact they was operating in violation of the Clean Air Act for seven years. Uh, the EPA has cited them for a violation of the Clean Water Act. And uh, when you go to the Oklahoma Department of Mines with all this, you know, all your evidence, they just look at you and say, we don't care. Hmm. We don't care. <laughs> wow. Now, did you get a response from the White House? Uh, no, sir, not yet. How long has it been? Oh, it was done this week. I see. Okay. We, we, the response time, you know, in fairness, uh, they may not have had time to respond, but we'll see. Okay. And uh, from the information that I got from Ohio Citizen Action, they say that Sunstein's, Sunstein's staff 
has met with representatives of the toxic coal ash industry more than 20 times, but uh, from what they can tell, only met with a handful of citizens like you who've actually been affected. Peter Kelly, uh, what do you know about efforts uh, at the Sunstein office there to hear both sides of this critical issue? Well, what they say is that on matters where there's a difference of opinion, they're going to get both sides. And what's on the public record is that as many as 28 times, or, or maybe more now, they have met with um, the industry, including the various people who make the coal ash in the first place and who use it in the various ways that, that we consider reckless. Um, and uh, as, as few as four times, it's, it's hard to tell exactly from what's on the record, uh, but with uh, with people who represent the communities living with this coal ash. Well, wait a minute. There's the fifth time at the Brookings Institute. There you go. <laughs> right. So, 20, so 28 to 5, if we're, if we're being extremely generous. So I, I think it's great that people like Tim are willing to speak up and tell their side of the story and put it down in a letter and send it in and say, you really ought to come here and see this for yourself, because um, it's clear that here in Washington they are not getting the kind of... Uh, attention that they need from from uh, everybody that that is going to be affected. And, and so, you know, the more people that are willing to speak up at this critical moment, the, the better the chance they'll actually treat this stuff like the, like the toxic waste that it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Peter, in response, if I might put in a little plug, we have a, a lady in our group that is excellent. She has created a website. It's intheairwebreathe.com, and I would encourage anybody and everybody go on that website and look at some of the videos, and they'll get a lot. They may not be able to come to Bokoshi, but it will be the next best thing. Okay, so it's in intheairwebreathe.com? All right. And I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i post that on my website with the uh, show information, along with the correct spelling of uh, ashsunstein.com. And, gentlemen, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, Tim, I know in your case that this is something that you're passionate about because of, uh, you know, your own health and safety are at risk and you feel a legacy to stay on the land that you own there despite these interlopers who have brought this toxic waste uh, into your backyard. Uh, and uh, do, you, do you have any federal representatives, uh, Congress or senators in Oklahoma, who are at least uh, concerned about this issue? Well, yes, sir, they're concerned, but I think maybe the wrong way because from what we can find out from uh, our lawyer, Harlan Hinges, who's a lawyer for Citizens for Energy Matters that's representing us in this struggle, uh, the only action that they have taken so far is to put pressure on the EPA to back off of these people. They want to know when they can go back into full operation, in other words, when they can just start polluting the heck out of everything again like they've been doing in the past. Yeah. So that that's the action that we're getting out of our out of our uh, elected officials right now. Okay. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me. I want to mention that uh, Ohio Citizen Action is also representing individuals in uh, Rowan County, Tennessee, Uniontown, Alabama, Green Township, Pennsylvania, and Meigs County, Ohio, where there are similar problems. Uh, so this is an issue that you should pay attention to. Uh, Ohio Citizen Action is on the web at ohiocitizen.org. Peter Kelly, thank you for joining us. Tim Tanksley, great to meet you. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you both for talking with me today. And now we will resume this uh, 
imitation version of Jimmy Dean's Big John. Uh, I got it from iTunes, and I want my 99 cent back. <laughs> Big John. Then came the day at the bottom of the mine when the timber cracked and men started crying. Miners were praying and hearts beat fast. Everybody thought that they'd breathe the last of John. Through the dust and the smoke of this man-made hell Walked a giant of a man that the miners knew well Grabbed a sagging timber, gave out with a groan And like a giant old tree just stood there alone Big John Big John Big John Big bad John Big John with all his strength, he gave a mighty shove. Then a miner yelled out, there's a light up above. And 20 men scrambled from a would-be grave. Now there's only one left down there to save Big John. With jacks and timbers, they started back down. Then came that rumble way down on the ground. And the smoke and gas belched out of that mine. Everybody knew it was the end of the line for Big John. Big John. Big John, Big Bad John, Big John. Now they never reopened that worthless pit. They just placed a marble stand in front of it. These few words written on that stand. At the bottom of this mine lies a big, big man. Big John. Big John, Big John. Big Bad John. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Don't email me. Email Ash Sunstein at the White House. And tell him to stop doing the bidding of the coal industry. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling.